Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Thanks for coming, everybody. So, um, I guess before we get into this, we should probably talk a little bit about what we do, why we do it, and how we actually know each other. Um, Jeff and I met in 2010 when my first book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, was uh, published, uh, which is all about baseball and the 1970s and the you know, setting against the various uh, social changes of the era. And uh, Jeff kind of dug where that was coming from, and we got together for dinner at Frankie's Italian on Melrose, <laughs> and uh, it's yeah, the fabulous Frankie's Italian, and uh, turned out that we are both uh, Stratomatic baseball fans from way back, and as I would learn, that uh, actually plays into Jeff's writing. Correct. <laughs> Yeah, basically what I do is I, uh, I replay old seasons using this uh, very well-known tabletop baseball game and then create uh, plots and characters and stories to wrap around the action. So <clears throat> creating what I call uh, kind of retro, retro baseball fictionalizations. Uh, that's the best way I can put it. But... Um, the first one I did was uh, 1924 and You Are There, which was basically a coming-of-age story about a 17-year-old Phillies fan. And the second one was called Ball Nuts, which was kind of a goofy time travel thing. Uh, I did a reading with Dan last year in Culver City with that one. And this new one uh, uses 1958, which I figured would be perfect for a murder mystery set in San Francisco because it was the first year the Giants and Dodgers played on the West Coast and Vertigo was filmed in 1958 in San Francisco one of my favorite movies and it just seemed it just seemed like a natural thing to do so um, I'm going to read uh, a few short chapters all the chapters in Mystery Ball are pretty short and um, the first one is actually a kind of a mashup of the first and second chapter called Unsafe at Home and goes into Perfume at Midnight. <laughs> I have to channel my inner Sam Spade now. <clears throat> Tough to make out a dead body when it's covered in peanut shells and royal crown cola, but there it was, head wedged under the wooden seats of row D, section 16, third base side, my section of Seal Stadium. Bad enough, they wanted me and the other ushers and usherettes here two hours before Johnny Antonelli's first pitch to Jim Gilliam, it being the first big league game ever played in this state. But I had to spend the whole afternoon babysitting San Francisco fat cats and skinny weasels who probably never saw one Pacific Coast League game in their lives. 
And now this. Some poor sap who either had a stroke from the Giants edging the Dodgers 7-6 to six in the ninth inning chiller or got trampled in the post-game exit stampede. At least that's what I thought. Until I crouched, brushed the peanut chills off him and saw the pearl-white handle of a switchblade stuck in his lower back. Guess I'd better introduce myself. Snappy Drake here. You can call me by my birth name if it floats your rubber duck, which happens to be Milton. Just don't expect any flowers and wine from me if you don't go with Snappy. See, every SEAL Stadium ush called me Snappy because of my famous curveball. Threw it two years for the Oakland Oaks and one for the Seattle Rainiers before the thing stopped snapping altogether and hung there like an executed prisoner waiting for hitters to club it to death. Which is why I've been showing SEALs fans to their seats since 1951. Of course, that PCL gig is history now. In case you were in Alcatraz or drinking too many rusty nails down at Lefty O'Doul's, the big news in the Bay the past eight months was that the New York Giants moved out here over the winter, along with the Brooklyn Dodgers down L.A. way. Hell, I don't think the town was this hot and bubbly since the gold rush, and that was a couple of my grandpas ago. So yeah, I was planning to dust off those third base boxes and rake in quarter tips at 16th and Bryant all summer. Spent at least an hour with the cops after the opener. One of them was built like gorgeous George Wagner, but his suit was too small. The older one, who asked all the questions, actually was named Malarkey, smelled like scallions, and probably hadn't smiled since before the Depression. They had nothing on me, but you wouldn't know from their attitude. They didn't know the stiff's name because his wallet was gone and no one had come looking for him yet. Not one person in the stands saw what happened. All the cops found was a piece of paper in his pocket that said, Abandon, with the rest of the sentence, or whatever the expression was, torn off. Afterwards, I was so annoyed I tipped a few more ham drafts than usual across the street at the double play. Chumpo poured me a free one when I told him the story, and then Reggie Fleming and Bob Stuckey arrived. Reggie and Bob were my partners in inebriation after SEALs games. Reggie was in construction. Bob sold nine-inch screws, and if they didn't start a lame-brained argument on a given day, then that day was ruined. (laughs) This one was about Horace Stoneham, the Giants' owner, supposedly making a land deal to build a brand-new park for the team the next few years. Bob didn't believe it because he was sure they were going to double-deck SEALs. Reggie did because he had ears in the land grab trade, and so they were off. 24 hours and our first night game victory later, Reggie and Bob were still at it. I got bored, paid my tab, and hiked down the hill to my walk-up at 15th and Van Ness. The usual clammy fog was rolling in from South Bay, the thick kind that makes even mailboxes look spooky. I hiked to the top of my creaky wooden steps and stopped. A woman stood there in the shadows. I couldn't see her face, but the perfume she was wearing convinced me she had to be a looker. What I could see was a cloud of cigarette smoke blowing toward my face from where her head must have been, and a smart navy skirt that showed enough leg to keep my shoes stapled to the porch step. (laughs) Mr. Drake? (laughs) You could say that. I hear you found that body after the game yesterday. Yeah? Says who? It was in the papers. Too bad I don't read them. Can I help you? She dropped her cigarette, pulverized it with a high red heel, and emerged from the shadow. I was dead right. She was blonde, late 20s, with a sweet, farm-raised face that made you want to whinny and a gait to match. (laughs) How did I come up with this time? She she held out a slender, very white hand for me. It was holding a business card. I read her name out loud the way it looked. Liz Dumas, Los Angeles Herald Examiner? 
Yes, I'm one of their crime reporters. I was hoping to get an exclusive interview with you. And Dumas is pronounced Dumas, by the way. It's French. Well, I'm pretty damn tired right now, and I need to sleep. The finale is a day game, you know. Oh, I know. I just, so good night. I took out my key, stepped past her to the door. Her hand found my shoulder. Please, the police were no help at all. You must have something more. Hey, lady, I don't know you. The guy had a knife in his back, okay? For all I know, he was a Dodgers fan. <laughs> was he? Because that's, forget it, okay? I don't know why, I don't know any more than the cops right now. Not to mention, Miss Dumis, that my feet are about to fall off. She stood there with a sweet, pathetic pout, like a lost schoolgirl. I felt bad all of a sudden. Hey, I don't mean to be a jerk. You just caught me on a bad night. Besides, you haven't even told me what that perfume is you're wearing. She smiled a little. It was a nice smile. Diosimo by Christian Dior. Hmm. Ten bucks says I remember that. I unlocked my door and stepped inside. Stood there and waited for her high heels to make it to the bottom of the steps. Then I killed the outside light. After the last game, another madhouse of runners all over the map, and this time an extra inning loss, I went under the stands to the usher's room to change my clothes. Johnny Heap, one of the clubhouse boys, walked up behind me and handed me a sealed envelope. Said this actress-looking girl just gave it to him outside. I opened the thing, read the piece of paper first, which said, Please come, Liz. Inside the paper was a ticket to tomorrow's Giants-Dodgers opener at the Memorial Coliseum and a plane ticket to Los Angeles. <clears throat> Thanks. Okay, uh, let's see. Jump ahead about a month in the story. Um, there's been another murder, of course, and um, Snappy stumbled across that one. And they're trying kind of to try to piece things together. Liz, he's gotten sort of chummy with Liz. She's come back to L.A. And um, uh, basically, they, there's a group called Save the Point, the Save the Point Committee, which is um, kind of they're trying to protect the area where Candlestick Park is uh, planned to be built as a sanctuary for seabirds and marsh grass. And um, so. They think maybe somebody with that committee has something to do with the murder because it was a construction guy who got killed, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, their search first brings them to a record store in North Beach area called Daddy O's, and that then sends them to, tells them about a poetry reading that night at a place called Coexistence Bagel in uh, North Beach. Actually, except for some recent drinks I had with Liz at the saloon, North Beach wasn't a place I stuck around long in. Since the literary and poetry scene exploded there the last few years, it's been overrun by a whole raft of turtleneck punks in glasses who like to hang out on corners and question the universe. I gave up questioning mine a long time ago. The first game of the Dodgers series that night was amazing. The park was so electric that if the killer was there, he would have been too gripped by the action to squeeze a gnat. I checked out of my usher outfit the second it ended, made it back across town to Coexistence Bagel with Liz for the 11 p.m. reading. This joint made daddios look like a sewing circle. Tables had been removed and people stood and sat wherever possible. Someone passed a jug of red wine around that Liz and I both sipped from. Somebody else passed me a hand-rolled cigarette. I said I already had my camels, but he insisted I try his. So I grabbed a few puffs and found a little sweet and strong for my taste. A raised platform was at one end with a chair and a microphone set up. The master of poetry ceremonies, an old guy with wild white hair, bow tie and rumpled tweet sports 
sport coat appeared, read one of his short ones first. The crowd cheered after the last line, even though I found it impossible to understand, and Liz applauded to be polite. After the third or fourth of these things, my head started to swim. Damn cheap Napa wine. Liz nudged me, said I should get up there between poems to say something about saving the point. You know, to see which creepy-looking worms pop out of the woodwork. So I did. After this overbearing guy named Ginsberg read, and the, and the crowd went bonkers again, I slipped my way through the mob and onto the platform. Hi, folks. I looked out at the sea of turtlenecks and horn-rimmed glasses and went completely blank for a second. Who are you? yelled some guy with a strong, deep voice from the shadows. Um, Milton Drake? Read your poem, man. Well, I don't really have a poem, see? Sure you do. It's in your face. What was in my face was a visible afterglow from the game earlier at Seal Stadium, and either the wine or that weird tobacco was doing something funny to my thoughts because I grabbed the microphone and just started to ramble. Drysdale and Gomez, Dodgers and Giants, no big deal, neither team would win. Mays with a bomb, a cannonball, a missile, shooting into the mission night, two to nothing us. Snyder, Snyder, the Duke of Flatbush, old and slower and migrated west, puts one into orbit. Yeah, man, yelled the same guy again. <laughs> Hail Kirkland and Valmy Thomas, exploding their balls into bleacher hands, five to one us, but oh no, oh no. Fairley and Rogers and Zimmer aboard, and the Duke launches another, but Wagner and Mays and Cepeda strike back and eight to six for the locals now. Go, man, go! Cold hams and hot franks fatten the crowd. Big hits dizzy the minds. Ferrillo out of the park for eight to seven and Grissom for the rescue, except 24,000 desires dissolve like seagull prints on sand at high tide under a Pismo beach sky on Snyder, Ferrillo, and Fairley singles. Last gasp, we say, down nine to eight. Willie at the plate. Ed Roebuck ain't great. Dreams of a Bay Area nation all noosed. A grounder to Gilly and all of us die like double-day dogs lost to American fate on this cool Friday night. I stopped, wobbled. There was a slight pause and the bagel shop exploded. People I would never bother to talk to glad-handed me, pounded my back. Liz just gazed in my direction from the center of the room, dumbfounded. <laughs> then a handsome, chiseled guy in a t-shirt with a little curl of wavy black hair on his sweaty forehead walked up. I knew right away it was the guy who had coaxed me on. You were gone, man. Real plane gone. He gripped my hand with one of his meaty ones, Jack Kerouac, and it's a damn pleasure. (laughs) Well, (laughs) kind of spent after that one. One more little short one? Sure. You cool? We'll get into the day and the man. Okay, this one is a couple months after that. There's been more murders. Uh, they're trying all these different kind of weird sting operations. Uh, one with uh, where all the ushers are involved in using these walkie-talkies, which actually back then were called handy-talkies. And um, that didn't work. Nothing's really working. So... Uh, Snappy poses as a, pl- a backup catcher named Nick Testa. Nick Testa was actually on the 1958 Giants, and he never had an at-bat. He came in one game as a defensive replacement, never batted, and then was gone from baseball. <laughs> so I thought, well, uh, so what happens is Horace Stoneham, they're going, and the FBI, they're going to use him to travel with the team because a lot of these murders are now starting to happen as they travel on the road. So now he's with the team in the bullpen in Milwaukee. On June 24th, this is called the Heckler. 
Everywhere you go, there's someone riding your behind. Starts with mom and dad, keeps going with your math and gym teachers, then your boss, then the guy sitting in section three behind home plate, maybe ten rows up from the field. I told you about the heckler in Vancouver who had it in for me one night when I pitched for the Rainiers, right? Well, this guy in Milwaukee tonight made him sound like Lawrence Olivier. He was in the right field bleachers, just close enough for us to hear every word, and just far enough away to duck if one of our tobacco chores happened to whiz at his head. Hey, Crone, your mother called. She wants your name back. Ray Crone never got into games unless we were getting crushed, so insults made him feel special and just bounced off his cap. Don't start any crossword puzzles, guys, because every one of you is getting used. That wasn't exactly true. They only scored three runs, and Gordon Jones was the only reliever to leave the pen. But as a team, everyone felt sort of used. We racked up a dozen hits on Rush and Robinson, but left 12 on base. Cepeda got thrown out of the plate by Bruton to end the eighth, and we could only score one run in all night. No wonder we dropped seven out of eight to these guys. Must be embarrassing to be called giants when you guys hit like midgets. <clears throat> Just let me brain him once, I said to Bob Schmidt. I'll find a way back up there and put him on the floor before he even... No can do, Drake. One reason we make good money is to ignore this junk. Down by two in the ninth, Rogers and Pursue singled with one out. The stadium got quiet and the heckler got louder. Nice ballpark he got out there, giants. Down to only one murder a week, from what I hear. I turned, tried to get a view of him. The bleachers were too packed, the air too misty and smoke-filled to spot him. A few of the fans near him laughed, but most were fixated on the field. Mays hit one deep to right, that Aaron flagged down, and then was up to Cepeda. Oh, Giants, I'm scared. Big Orlando's up. Hey, shut up, creep. The words exploded from my mouth before I could stop them. The bleacher crowd grumbled, then booed. Schmidt slammed an elbow in my ribs. What are you, stupid? What did I just say? Nice going down there, Testa, yelled our friend in the bleachers. Or how about I call you Milton? Oh, no. I hadn't recognized his voice, but now I did. I hopped up on the bullpen bench, looked frantically at the crowd. Don't worry about your lady, Melton. We're drinking wine and everything's fine. That did it. I never spotted him, but I didn't care. Scaled the chain link fence like a mad Jimmy Pearsall. Leaped into the bleachers. Grabbed the first big guy I saw with a peanut bag and knocked him over his seat. Cepeda whiffed to end the game. The stadium rocked and cheered and few noticed the scuffle on the bleachers, which lasted only ten seconds. Grissom and Giel jumped the fence too. Pulled me off the baffled dad who was just sharing a peanut bag with his kids. I heard him, I blurted to my team. He was up there. Bad enough we're stuck in the second division, snarled Giel. Now you're going to get us suspended? Bill Rigney had a different response later. For the last game, I'd be banished to the dugout. I could think of worse fates, like the one that evil, cunning son of a rat bastard would suffer if I ever laid my hands on him. Thank you. And now for something completely different. <laughs> Dan, uh, Dan writes great, greatly entertaining uh, books, nonfiction books on baseball, particularly uh, the 1970s. Also writes for Rolling Stone and uh, was on Keith Oberman last year and um, read at the Hall of Fame, as I, rem- as I recall. You are correct. He has a very nice, very nice uh, reputation in the nonfiction baseball community. And uh, tonight, such as it is. Such as <laughs> <laughs> and tonight, uh, it being uh, All Star 
the All-Star break coming up in the next few days. Um, that's going to be kind of a theme we're going to be talking about is the All-Star game, among other things. But uh, Dan is planning to read something about the All-Star game from his book on 1976, Stars and Strikes. So without further ado, Mr. Dan Epstein. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. So th- this book, Stars and Strikes, is... Jeff's said is about uh, baseball in America in the bicentennial summer of 1976. And one of the main characters uh, in baseball that summer, uh, character in several senses of the word, was a guy named Mark the Bird Fidrich, who kind of came out of nowhere. He was a Tigers rookie, didn't even start his first game until the middle of May. And really, in the space of about six weeks, became a uh, phenomenon that that really transcended baseball. Not just, uh, I mean, he he was he won eight games in a row at one point um, for for a Tigers team that was not very good. Um, But he also just had so much uh, charisma, and he you know he looked he was called the Bird because he looked like Big Bird. He had big curly hair and it's kind of goofy. He acted like a big kid. On the, on the mound. He would talk to the baseball, try to tell it where to go. He would drop to his knees to manicure the mound. He would, you know, shake umpires' hands after a game. He would, you know, shake his teammates' hands after they made a good play. Just, like, really brought the sort of same enthusiasm that, say, me and my 10-year-old friends were uh, demonstrating on the diamond in 1976. He was bringing that to a major league context. So, uh, when the All-Star game rolls around, he he is appointed the is picked as the starting pitcher for the American League and and that's where that's where I'm going to pick up with my reading it's you know he's he's a very unsophisticated uh, gentleman he's from a farming community in Massachusetts and you know has really never done this before and doesn't really know know how things go uh, and uh, so let's follow the bird as he goes to Philadelphia for the all-star game in 76. Mark Fidrich found himself in familiar company on his trip to Philadelphia for the All-Star Game. Ron LaFleur and Rusty Staub had both been voted as starting outfielders for the American League, making this the first time since 1966 that three Tigers were in the starting lineup of a Midsummer Classic. Boston's Fred Lynn, the AL's top vote-getter with over 2.95 million ballots, would be joining LaFleur and Staub in the outfield. Minnesota first baseman Rod Carew, Baltimore second sacker Bobby Gritch, Texas shortstop Toby Hara, Kansas City third baseman George Brett, and New York catcher Thurman Munson comprised the rest of the American League starters. Though Munson had uttered some tart words about Fidrich in June, the irascible Yankee captain now took it upon himself to greet the young pitcher in the American League clubhouse, jovially informing him that he'd gotten a good chuckle out of the birds, who's Thurman Munson, quote. The ice broken, the new battery mates exchanged signed baseballs. In what was surely the first pairing of Harpo Marx lookalikes in all-star game history, <laughs> Fidrich's mound counterpart would be Randy, jo- Randy Jones, whose 16-3 record and 2.53 ERA marked him as the obvious choice to start the game for the National League. John Montefusco, the Giants' lone all-star representative, was so annoyed by the endless attention the press devoted to Fidrich, who inadvertently burnished his down-to-earth image by showing up at the all-star game press conference in blue jeans and a flower-patterned shirt, that he convinced Jones to help him play a practical joke on the bird, wherein the Count introduced himself as Jones and the junk man introduced himself as Montefusco. 
When it came time for the press photographers to take a photo of the two starting pitchers posing together, Fidrich sought out Montefusco. Come on, Randy, they want us, he said. You don't even know who you're pitching against, do you? Montefusco laughed. Though the 1976 All-Star Game was played at Veterans Stadium on July 13th, the pregame festivities were essentially a starred and striped extension of the bicentennial pageantry witnessed in Philadelphia and elsewhere nine days earlier, complete with a colonial costume color guard flying the flags of the 13 original colonies. Happy birthday, read the light-up lettering along the left field wall. America, read the light-up lettering and right. A, five pointed, a giant five-pointed star with 76 in the center had been painted onto the artificial grass in center field, while the Phillies' 76 Liberty Bell logo was likewise rendered behind home plate. President Gerald Ford was on hand to ambidextrously toss out the first balls to, bench, to Johnny Bench and Thurman Munson. Before the game, Ford, surrounded by a posse of Secret Service agents, paid a visit to the clubhouses, schmoozing awkwardly with the players from both teams. My hat size depends on how the polls are going, he joked to Steve Garvey, who offered him a Dodgers cap. Right now, I'll take seven and a half. Like the 200-plus journalists in town for the event, Ford made a point of seeking out Mark Fidrich, who seemed exasperated by the approach of his latest visitors. I thought we had a game to play, he complained, until he realized that the president was among them. Though initially shocked by his unexpected meeting with the leader of the free world, Fidrich was really more interested in whether Ford's 19-year-old son, Jack, was at the game because he wanted to ask him what it was like to date a celebrity like tennis star Chris Everett. <laughs> Fidrich was one of the few American League players to get a rousing ovation from the 63,974 fans in attendance, the third largest crowd in All-Star Game history. As with every All-Star Game of the 1970s, the 1976 contest was a colorful affair, showcasing an eye-popping variety of polyester double-knits, ranging from the orange and yellow horizontal stripes worn by the Houston Astros' Cesar Cedeno and Ken Forsch, to the collared White Sox tunics sported by Goose Gossage, to the maroon pinstripes of the host team, the Philadelphia Phillies. Phil Garner and Raleigh Fingers, the A's two representatives, each donned different Oakland uniforms. Garner wearing a gold jersey with green sleeves and Raleigh Fingers sporting a green jersey with gold sleeves. Al Oliver and Bake McBride respectively sported Pirates and Cardinals pillbox caps. The entire National League squad actually posed for photos together before the game wearing special white NL Centennial pillbox caps with blue stripes and the blue N logo, though the players swapped them out for their regular headgear at game time. Out of uniform for the occasion was Hank Aaron, who could be seen in the commissioner's box wearing a conservative suit and tie. This was the first time since his rookie season of 1954 that Hammer and Hank, who was hitting only 255 with nine home runs, hadn't taken the field at the All-Star game. Bowie Kuhn had suggested making a special dispensation to allow Aaron to appear in what would have been his record 25th consecutive All-Star game. But baseball's reigning home run king declined, not wanting to make the AL squad as a charity case. The game itself began with Jones giving up a quick, quick leadoff sing, single to LaFleur. After erasing the Tiger from the base pass by inducing Carew to hit into a 4-6-3 double play, Jones, who was uncharacteristically nervous about his all-star start, walked George Brett with a fastball he later deemed to be the hardest I've thrown in three or four years. Jones then got Munson to ground out to short for a force out and left the mound to his curly-haired American League counterpart. Fidrich was even more nervous than Jones, who at least had previous all-star game experience. 
It was as if the bird had suddenly awakened from a dream to find 63,000 people staring at him, and he struggled to regain his famed concentration and keep the ball low in the strike zone. Pete Rose, who'd faced Fidrich during spring training and took offense at Fidrich's habit of talking to the baseball, <laughs> promised Larry Boa before the game that he would hit a liner back through the box his first time up. Sure enough, Rose took the second pitch he saw from Fidrich and drove it up the middle. Steve Garvey, the second NL batter of the night, drove a high and outside pitch on a line to right field, where Rusty Staub attempted to play the ball on a hop, then stumbled on the astroturf as it skipped past him to the wall. Staub's return throw to the infield arced high like a softball pitch, and Rose scored standing up while Garvey took third. It was the first time Fidrich had given up a first inning run since entering the majors. Those mound, mound antics were comparatively muted. Fidrich looked a little more like the bird of legend while facing the next three batters. Joe Morgan, who, who habitually pumped his left arm while waiting on a pitch, a funky chicken-like motion meant to remind himself to keep his elbow away from his body, flailed wildly at Fidrich's first offering before, bopping to, before popping to short right. George Foster grounded weakly to second, scoring Garvey, and Greg Lezinski popped the first pitch he saw to Carew in fall territory. But despite regaining his poise, Fidrich left the mound with the AL squad sitting in a 2 to nothing hole. The NL bats continued to peck away at the bird in the bottom of the second when he gave up singles to Johnny Bench and Dave Concepcion. With runners on first and third and one out, Jones stepped to the plate. Fidrich handcuffed Munson with a sinking fastball, and Concepcion advanced the second on a pass ball. Fidrich then struck out Jones and got Rose to hit a grounder to the right side and gave, veteran stadium, gave the veteran stadium crowd a glimpse of his impressive athleticism when he ran to first to take the toss from Carew. After the final out of the inning, the bird dashed excitedly to the dugout and grabbed a bat, only to learn that manager Daryl Johnson was sending Hal McRae up to pinch hit for him. Fidrich begged Johnson to allow him to go up to the plate and see just one pitch. No, answered Johnson, because I know you'll swing at it. Later in the game, ABC's Warner Wolf cornered Fidrich in the clubhouse and asked him about his first All-Star game outing. Life, the, dis the obviously disappointed pitcher smiled, shaking his hand. I don't know, man. I was happy to be here. I'm happy to have my teammates here that helped me get here. But damn, I didn't show what I could do, though. <laughs> then again, not too many of his fellow AL All-Stars showed what they could do that night, either. <laughs> After Jones settled down in the third inning and held the AL bats hitless, Catfish Hunter, who replaced Fidrich on the mound, gave up a two-run tater to George Foster, who crushed it over the happy birthday in left center to make it four to nothing. Fred Lynn hammered his Tom Seaver pitch over right field wall for a solo homer in the top of the fourth, but the AL bats only managed two more hits over the next five innings, while the NL hitters put three more runs on the board off Frank Tanana in the eighth. As the 13th National League victory in the last 14 Midsummer Classics became an increasingly foregone conclusion, ABC began cutting away to the Democratic National Convention at New York City's Madison Square Garden, <laughs> where the legs of Senator Hubert Humphrey and Chicago Mayor Richard Daley were among the evening speakers. Jimmy Carter would be officially nominated for president the following night, with Minnesota Senator Walter Mondale receiving the vice presidential nod the night after. A record 60 million people tuned in that evening to watch the All-Star Game, giving the, con giving the contest a significantly higher Nielsen rating than CBS or NBC broadcasts of the convention. But the fact that ABC deemed snippets of platform-related speeches more interesting than the game at hand pretty much said it all. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and also, I just uh, wanted to read another uh, 
quick snippet from the uh, book, which is all-star game related, but also I like to mix a lot of uh, pop culture stuff into my books because I believe that, you know, baseball doesn't, like anything else, doesn't really happen in a vacuum. And uh, But what's interesting to me about the 70s is that's really the first time where you see pop culture kind of colliding head-on with with uh, baseball. And in this case, we have a uh, an issue of a uh, an epidemic, a disease epidemic scare colliding with uh, the All-Star Game and it's uh, things that happen immediately after. So this is this is from a, a chapter called "You Should Be Dancing," which uh, all, all the chapters in this book are named after popular songs from 1976. And "You Should Be Dancing," of course, was a 1976 hit for the beach for the Bee Gees. <laughs> Making a quick excuse me. Making a quick spin through the AM radio dial on any day of August 1976, it was almost as if you were privy to a scientific laboratory experiment bent on concocting the most perfect summer pop hit ever recorded. From the polished post-folk harmonies of the Starland vocal band's Afternoon Delight and England Dan and John Ford Coley's I'd Really Love to See You Tonight, to the infectious disco grooves of the Bee Gees' You Should Be Dancing and Walter Murphy's A Fifth of Beethoven, to the silky smooth R&B of the Brothers Johnson's I'll Be Good to You and Lou Rawls' You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. Practically everything wafting out of the speakers sounded backlit by afternoon sunshine and caressed by gentle ocean breezes. But the sunniest, breeziest, most intrinsically summery song of 1976 had to be Summer, the new single by multiracial L.A. funk band War, which sang of stickball games and open fire hydrants, rhymed Disneyland with rapping on the CB radio in the van, and meandered up the billboard charts with the same happily unhurried groove that the musicians laid down on the recording. It sounded blissful, stoned, and several galaxies removed from the Legionnaire's disease hysteria that seemed to be dominating every radio station news break. No one seemed to know that what this new disease actually was, only that of the 2,000 veterans who'd attended a, Phil- a Pennsylvania American Legion convention held July 21st to the 24th at Philadelphia's Bellevue Stratford Hotel, over 130 had been hospitalized with similar symptoms, headaches, fatigue, chest pains, high fevers, and serious lung congestion. By the first week of August, 25 of them were dead. Swine flu, bird flu, typhoid fever, epidemiologists quickly ruled out all of those possibilities, but that that did little to ease the nation's already heightened anxiety over the possibility of of a massive influenza outbreak. If anything, the mysterious nature of this new affliction, which killed some convention goers, yet somehow completely spared many of the people they ate, drank, and shared hotel rooms with, just ratcheted the panic and paranoia up even higher. In the towns where the legionnaires were buried, some acquaintances of the deceased avoided their funerals for fear of contagion, while an information hotline set up by Philadelphia city officials received up to 400 calls an hour from concerned citizens. Philly tourism took uh, took another unexpected hit in the midst of what was supposed to be a banner summer as frightened tourists canceled their plans to visit the city. The Bellevue Bellevue Stratford was temporarily closed while health officials conducted an investigation. Since visiting ball clubs often stayed at the hotel, and in fact the All-Star Game press conference had even been held there just a little week before the Legion convention, travel directors of the Phillies' August opponents worked frantically to rearrange their lodgings, discovering too late in some cases that the backup hotels had also played the host to some of the infected Legionnaires. 
The Phillies, the Phillies remained untouched by the new disease, as did most Americans, since the total number of reported cases only came to 221, with 34 related fatalities. It would be another six months before scientists identified the good cause of the disease. A strain of bacteria dubbed Legionella pneumophilia, carried by amoeba that thrive in stagnant water, which had apparently been spread via the Bellevue Stratford's air conditioning system. On that note, <laughs> thankfully the All-Star game uh, will not be cursed with something like that. This well, year. hopefully not. I mean, it has its own, own curses. Yeah, it's its own problems. Um, <laughs> the um, yeah, I mean that that's that's something that Jeff and I have been talking a lot via email. Is just um, and you know we we want to throw this to you guys as well. Um, the All-Star game it's happening Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, and I don't want to get on the, you know, it was better in my day soapbox, but really it seemed, well, okay, Pat Pat wants to get on that soapbox, uh, and really it was better in my day, so uh, why, why dance around it? But it really seems like, you know, every day I'm seeing more and more uh, headlines about the event where it's like somebody's injured and can't play, this team doesn't want, you know, the White Sox don't want Chris Sale to pitch, um, um, uh, from the Nationals, Max Scherzer, Scherzer. Sonny Gray's not. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I know. It's, uh, it's, it, look, he, he's not a tiger anymore. He's dead to me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's like all these stars, all these guys who are not going to be in the home run derby and may not even be playing in the game. It's it's like it, it used to be you would turn on the All Star Game and see legitimately the fifty biggest, most impressive, most popular players in the game out there on the field. And now it's just like, you know, I mean, the, the rosters are expanded to, you know, so that they can bring in all these, you know, extra players. And it's just, I, I find myself unable to care about it anymore. Right. I mean, it, I think it was better in the old days. And um, I, I did a little, uh, little research last, looking at some of this stuff. In uh, 1958, uh, in Baltimore, the All-Star Game, there were National League only used 15 players. American League only used 17 players. So a lot of these guys played the whole played game. The whole game, yeah. Um, last year, the National League used 30 players. The American League used 32. Um, and uh, the problem, as I see it, is that they can't... Major League Baseball, they don't seem to understand... They're not clear about what they really want the game to be. Right. They, they say that it means something, but then they play it and they fill the rosters as if it doesn't mean something. Right. And and it's it's it's. I think it's definitely time to to get rid of the home field advantage being decided for the World Series being oh, yeah. decided by the All Star Game. I think that's. that's I mean, that was a silly Bud Selig uh, thing to begin with. But I covering think, his ass for the, the for the tie. Yeah. For the tie. Uh, in two thousand and two, so so um, so yeah, and it was, so nineteen fifty eight. That was uh, was that the last year that fans were allowed no, to vote? It was actually nineteen fifty seven. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Uh, the the uh, fans in Cincinnati stuffed the ballot boxes like crazy and voted seven Reds, Cincinnati Reds, onto the starting All Star team. 
because the Cincinnati Enquirer sent out like private ballots to everybody. And today they're telling you to vote 35 times. So right. it's kind of like okay, or, go ahead. or as many times as you want for the <laughs> for away. the extra yeah. for the the last guys. We found, my wife and I found out trying to vote Yoanna Cespedes in for the Tigers. It was just like, is this thing ever going to stop? But no, nope, you can just 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 keep you know punching in the new captcha and you're, you you vote as many times. But they took the vote away from the fans after that in 1957 until 1970. They right. brought it back. And so 76, uh, you know, in in my book, by that point. It sort of gotten back into a groove. Uh, it was, you know, uh, I think it was the most ballots ever cast at that point in the All Star Game, but it was not. Uh, I mean, the the Reds were heavily uh, heavily voted in, but the Reds were also really one of the best team. I mean, they were the best team in baseball at the time, so it was not that surprising to see you know guys like Joe Morgan and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench all right. all as starters. But but it, it definitely has gotten out of control since then. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I could really care less about it anymore. I I think. I I tweeted last week. I said the All Star Game is like the Oscars now, where it's it's hyped for weeks, and there are outrages over these snubs, and then the telecast is awful, and then like a day later, you forget who even won. Um, the only thing is they don't talk about who wore what at the yeah, All Star yeah, Game, right? Who wore what? My friend Lou over here uh, won't even has boycotted the All Star Game for years, and calls me usually the next day and says, "Okay, what did I miss?" <laughs> and I said, "You yeah, know, nothing." So, so do we want to uh, throw out uh, well, Q&A, or is there well, other stuff you want to talk about? subjects we can, but we can kind of, you know, I, if anybody has anything to say about expanded replay or... Uh, yeah, or, right, well, right, that's, 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 that's a great one. The, 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 the re- replay system <laughs> in baseball right now is, is also something I think we both feel should uh, be seriously uh, altered. Seriously altered. Yeah. Um, I don't think the idea of replaying the tough calls is bad. It's just the way they do it. It's, right. it's this manager challenge system. Right. It's, it's like, the, you know, there's all this talk about how baseball is too boring and slow, and then they <laughs> pause the game for five minutes while the umpires get together around a TV and talk about it. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's a bit silly. Uh, but anybody else, any other questions? Anything? Want to talk about the Dodgers broadcasting fiasco? That's a good one. Uh, none of, neither of those. But um, well, first of all, just the uh, graphic override over sports now. I mean, all the different like quick cuts and the replays and waiting five minutes, you know, for the decision or whatever. But then the latest thing that really disturbs me, and I'm wondering what you guys think about it. The box. Right? The box is superimposed on the batter on ESPN. I mean, you, you can't even see the catcher. If you like. It's a different color as it covers him. And it's luckily, it's the only station that does it, and I actually wrote to ESPN and complained. You know, like, the only letter I've ever written to any newspaper <laughs> publication. But what do you guys think of that? Oh yeah, I, I think I, I actually don't mind the box in the strike zone for the yeah. most part. I just don't like the way ESPN does it. I think you know, I, I, beside the batter, but over the right. catcher live, it's like right. I, I mean, I, I like being able to see 
if you know was that a strike? What you know how how that does you know because I like to you know bitch about the umpire's calls if it was you know <laughs> wasn't in there. But yeah, I think I think that sort of imposing thing. Uh, that that's one thing I really hate. The other thing, and I don't know if this is an ESPN thing or it's, it's sort of like gone into every uh, a lot of broadcasts is timing the speed of the ball as it leaves the bat to go. It's like like that one traveled at 110 miles an hour. It's like, I mean, when, when you're talking about a pitcher's velocity, like that's information you can use. You can see like, is this guy changing up speeds? Is he tiring? You know, how like that, that has a purpose. But like, you know, I, I think that it's just this sort of like attempted extremification of the game. It's like, you know, that, that yeah. pitch would have taken somebody's head off coming off that bat. Yeah. And you know, well, I don't a, care. a lot of this has to do with the current, the, this so-called stats revolution that's come on, and I and I think as far as like team front offices, the way the new ways of using advanced stats can be very valuable in uh, you know, figuring out who to sign and all that. But if it interferes with a broadcast, or if it inter- you know if it kind of gets in the way of things, I can kind of take it with a grain of salt. But this they have this thing called the Statcast now, which is that right. that's part of that. And uh, it's it's not really my cup of tea, but I have a lot of friends who are totally into the advanced stats, and uh, I, I'm fine with them being around. But it's it's you kind of have to kind of pick and choose, right? Yeah. No, I I I had the very. Uh, pleasant experience of watching um, a Dodger game the other night in the company of a bunch of uh, former ballplayers, uh, most of whom played in the 70s, some of the 60s, and found myself talking to Don Buford, who used to play for the Orioles and the White Sox. And, uh, you know, his career ended in the early mid-70s, and this was a guy who would usually walk like at least 110 times a season. He was a, he was a, a, a leadoff hitter, and, and typically his on-base percentage was, you know, upper 390s, 400, thereabouts. And in today's, I was talking to him about, you know, how in, well, in today's baseball, you would be considered, you know, a superstar because, you know, having that kind of on-base percentage and, you know, drawing all these walks. And he just looked at me, he says, um, I won't use the word he said, but he said, computers are BS. <laughs> so that you know, it's just like, well, yeah, I guess they are, Don. It's, it's, it all depends on how you look at it. I, I also like, you know, I, I think, it, it, you know, statistics are valuable for helping you understand the game for the most part. But the you know extreme speed of a ball off a bat that doesn't really add anything to the. Uh, it kind of seems to me that that sort of leads the way to the elimination of the, the human calling strike. I mean, it seems like that's down the road for sure. Right. Well, right. The the, the, the automated strike zone and, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm just waiting for them to put uh, put pitching machines on the mound so we can just, like, do away <laughs> with the, uh, you know, all these guys with injured arms. It's like, let's just save money and, you know, put, put the right. uh, iron mic out there. I got a question for Dan, and we can right. throw it out to anybody else who has an opinion on this. What does this mean? Playing the game the right way. Ah, playing the game the right way. <laughs> this drives me absolutely nuts. This, this to me, is like the battle cry of like the uptight 
person who like can't stand to see any personality uh, in the game. Having fun. Having fun. The, no bat flips. No, you know, no watching your home run go out. No, you know, um, and and that if a player does that sort of thing, they should immediately be punished with a fastball under the chin. <laughs> and I think that's crap. I, I really, I think baseball needs more characters. One of the reasons I write about baseball in the seventies. This book and my book, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, is specifically because there were so many interesting characters. They're oddball individuals who were not afraid to express themselves on the field or talking to reporters, whatever. I I think this whole sort of, you know, playing the game the right way, that that reminds me of like, you know, the Cardinal way or the Yankee way, which is like, (laughs) you know, these sort of like long, you know, these teams that have a, you know, Many decades long reputation for um, you know uptightness and you know just sort of like you know this is the way you conduct yourself on the field and off the field and and uh, yeah I, I, wow. I'm not into that at all. Well, I was watching the Orioles game last night and Caleb Joseph, who's a backup catcher on the Orioles, came up and hit a hit a home run. It was, yeah, it was cool. It was kind of a big hit. And the announcers going, Caleb Joseph, he's just great off the bench. He plays the game the right way. I say, how does he play the game the right way? And these other guys are playing wrong. You know, I don't know. It's just they kind of throw it out there. Right. I can't think of anything else. You know, I like (laughs) players who hustle all the time. I think that that works into it. This guy doesn't hustle. But but you know, but it's it's also. I mean, I I think there's there's also kind of a coded. You know, even in this day and age, there's kind of a coded racial thing there, especially with the older announcers, where like they will seize on, they'll fixate on the like not very good white player who's hitting like 250 and is sort of like bench role player and it's always just like oh he plays the game the right way I like to see him out there it's like right. yeah the, uh, you know the guys who are, looks like you you know the, gu- the, the, the guys true the guys who are called lunch pail players are right. always white right always so black, yeah. black players bring their lunch in a bag and I don't know what the, does anybody have any questions for Jeff and I Baseball, our books. I've got a couple, a couple of things. Oh, bring it, <laughs> bring it. All right, number one is I hated the designated hitter. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I think that the National League play is such an outlier play. College, little league, high schools, all DH. I'm afraid to have to say this, but I think we got a uniform to DH. Well, I, I would. Okay, let's let's tackle that first. The, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think the DH is a crime against man and God. I really like, but but at this point, what are you going to do? It's, it's and the thing that really put it over the top for me in terms of just like throwing up my hands and going, okay, fine, is interleague play. If if it was if they were doing interleague play you know, just a couple of weekends out of the year like they originally did, then it wouldn't be a big deal. But now that you have, you know, every night of the week there is an interleague game happening. So why are, you know, why are you penalizing one team or another and making them, you know, rearrange their lineups to fit, you know, fit yeah. this thing? Yeah, I hate it. But Particularly in the World Series where the games right. are super important. Why, why penalize a team? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think we just got to got to have the DH at this point. I mean, I, well, or I think it's going to happen. I don't think there's any way around it. <laughs> yes. And you had, you had another question? Oh, I don't know. All right, anybody else? Mike. 
Pete Rose in the All-Star game. What do you guys think about that? Uh, what about it? Is he going to be part of the All-Star game in some way? Oh, right. I guess he was. They, they did say that he would be allowed to be there because they, they said Pete Rose would be allowed to be at the All-Star game because it's in Cincinnati. Yeah. So he's like a Reds great. Who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure, and I'm not sure if the recent revelations that he actually bet on games as a player is going to, to factor into this. I mean, look, the guy is a, the guy was a great player. He's he's you know one of the all time Reds greats. He probably should be there. I don't really have a problem with that. I you know I can't defend his uh, you know his actions uh, as a gambler, but you know it's you know it's the same thing with the Hall of Fame. I think he. He should be in the Hall of Fame eventually. At this point, I think they should probably wait till after he's dead. So, uh, but you know, the guy—the guy deserves to be in there just in terms of what he meant to the game while he was playing it. Does anybody know how much money he won or lost? Game? That's a really good question. Good question. I, I, I would suspect that he, he actually lost more money than he won. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sure that will all come out in time. <laughs> Anybody? All right. I'll give you a yeah, come on. <laughs> right, like, the, 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 the constant yapping by mm-hmm. broadcasters, um, particularly when there's three of them in the booth. Terrible. They don't shut up for a second. And what's sad now, and I, I, I sympathize for those of you who are not getting Dodger games, mm-hmm. obviously we're going to get a couple more years of in. Right. Hopefully, hopefully. By himself. Right. Right? On the game. I mean, he does his kind of ruminating about the 1920s. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> but, 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 and, and some of that. Shilling. Yeah, they don't shut up for a second, yeah. and then they're not watching the game. Right. So, so, so they're, they're off the game. And they're, and they're caught up in, in, in their own speculation and pseudo insights about about. Basically. Yeah, this this is. And this is driving me nuts because I, I sit there by myself saying, "Shut." Oh. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's interesting because, you know, what, one of the joys of, of, for me about, you know, researching this book was that I got to watch a lot of broadcasts from 1976, almost all of which were, you know, you had, unless there were national broadcasts, you had one or two guys in the booth, max. But when you get to the World Series, it's it was it's pretty. It was interesting to to watch those games again, because you had um, um, Howard Cosell um, and I, I believe Keith Jackson and Reggie Jackson in the booth together. And so Reggie was kind of like their, you know. Sort of like what they have now, where it's, there's always a former player in there or current player commenting, and uh, you know, listening to Howard step all over Reggie Jackson and Keith Jackson. I mean, you know, the the, the there is no broadcast booth big enough for those two egos. Uh, so it's, it's and and of course Reggie was actually more insightful than Howard was. But but yeah, I would. I mean, I, I definitely think the three man booth is a terrible idea. And but if you're going to have have guys in there, get some guys who you know have you know insights. What's weird to me is that. If you look at most broadcast, most radio broadcast teams uh, for teams today, usually those guys are pretty good. But for whatever reason, yeah. they 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 throw the garbage at the TV. Because so. if you're you're watching it, so you don't have to hear what's right. The, right, you, you can just mute it and just mute it. But 
Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the three people in the booth just drives me nuts. And the thing about Vince Scully that I've always loved is that you can have Vince Scully even just on the radio or, or TV and be in the other, down the hall doing your laundry or making dinner or at your computer or whatever you're doing. You don't miss one thing in the game, right. not one thing. Some of these other guys, it's like you say, they're having like a talk show. Right. They're having a talk show, and you don't even know what's going on. They right. don't give the score at the end of the inning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? or, or, you know, I mean, th- this is always my problem with Rick Monday calling the games to the Dodgers, though, because it would be like, you know, ball one, ball four, he walked him. You know, it's just like, <laughs> hey, wait. <laughs> the, 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 the one thing that, that uh, uh, and, and I mean, this, this I kind of love about Vince Scully, but it also can be a problem sometimes, is he will repeat stories from broadcast to broadcast because his thing is like he wants to make sure in case you missed last night's broadcast. Oh, yeah. here. So where this really <laughs> got to be a problem was, I think this was like 2002 when Adrian Beltry had that uh, botched appendectomy before the, uh, uh, before spring training and Missed a lot of spring training. And so every night for about the first month of the the season, every time Beltre would come up for the Dodgers for the first time in the game, Vin would mention the botched appendectomy and the colostomy bag that uh, that Adrian had to uh, wear. Uh, And this usually happened at about 7.40 at night, right as I was sitting down at my dinner in front of the TV to watch the game. So we've got for a while there, every time Adrian Beltre would come up for the first time, the game, I would just hit mute and then you know wait until the next batter came up. It's just like Vin, enough with the colostomy bag, man. <laughs> May Vin uh, be stay on for another uh, three years. Yeah, absolutely. Years. And, and we'd be able to see them. Yeah, yeah, that would that, yeah, would, that would also be nice. Yeah, that, that's why I'm moving to Chicago in two weeks, is so, so I can watch so, so I watch the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. And and I am moving to Chicago in two weeks, so I'd like to thank everybody who came because this is going to be my last uh, reading in L.A. for a long time. So, and would really like to thank uh, Skylight for having us. Definitely, this this is this is my favorite bookstore in L.A. Yeah, I just want to leave with one thing. Uh, I was watching the Cubs White Sox game today. <laughs> White Sox fan heard from in the corner there. And the interesting thing about that, it was, it was thinking about Dan moving to Chicago, watching the Cubs and White Sox, and then they were all wearing throwback uniforms from 1958 right. today. So that so, was just like cool. Jeff's book. As for both of us. Yeah. So with that, thank you everyone for coming, and uh, we're going to buy some books. Buy some books, stick them out. We'll sign them. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.